A few weeks back, I started thinking about the ministry of, of Jesus. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, during Easter actually, and I like to think about the ministry of Jesus through the eyes of the disciples. Because think about being around the man who came to save the world 24-7. Think about waking up and going out and, and ministering with Jesus himself. Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be, wouldn't it? These guys knew nothing else for approximately three years. They walked and they talked with Jesus himself. They saw every miracle that he did. They heard every message that he preached. And a lot of the messages that he gave, he gave more than once. And so not only did they get to hear the words of Jesus, but he would repeatedly state the same things to them over and over again. But Jesus died. And he was buried. Now, we also know that he didn't stay in that tomb. Hallelujah. Amen. We celebrated two weeks ago. I'm telling you today, we can still celebrate that Jesus is alive because the cross is still empty. But he appeared to Mary. He appeared to the disciples. He even appeared to two random men on the road to Emmaus. And so Jesus is alive. But he's alive. Hallelujah, he's alive. We say that just like it's, I'm going to go get groceries and Jesus is alive. I mean, we just say it like it's a matter of fact, but it is. It's a matter of fact that we can celebrate on a daily basis that Jesus Christ is no longer in that tomb, but He is alive and well and He's making intercession for us for the Father. Hallelujah. But that fact hadn't profoundly changed the disciples' lives just yet. It hadn't. At, at the time... When Jesus was just alive, then the disciples were just kind of hanging out. Now, we, we, we read in the Scripture that they go on to do great and mighty things to begin the early church, and, and we see all of these amazing things that the disciples did. But right after Jesus was resurrected, they're just kind of twiddling their thumbs, like, okay, what do we do now? And so... The new series that I want to start today, it's a little bit different. It's, uh, it's titled Stoke the Fire. And it's not your typical fire message. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that. A little bit of a different take. But I want to spend the next couple of weeks in a story in Scripture and see where it goes. So we're going to be in John chapter 21. We're going to start with verse 1. It says this, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We're going with you too. They went out, immediately got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore... That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, 
It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, for about, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes once again. Got my cough drops. And think about it. Think about the fact that there was so much going on that it had to absolutely boggle their minds. Think about the last couple of weeks of their existence. The man who they'd put their entire faith in was arrested. He was beaten almost to the inch, within an inch of his life, and then he was hung on a cross for everybody to see. Then he, was, he died, he was placed in a tomb, and they thought that was over. Well, then this emotional roller coaster continues because on the third day, they find out that Jesus is not in the tomb, that Mary comes running to them and says, He has appeared to me, He is alive, Jesus is no longer dead. And so they fear for their lives because there's so much going on in the government. People think they've stolen Jesus' body. And so they're hiding in a locked room, hanging out, writhing their hands, worried about what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is right there in front of them. Now you tell me Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. Because I'm telling you, if he just appeared right here in the middle of our room, we would probably be just a little bit freaked out. Amen? And just imagine a small setting, a a small room, and all of a sudden he's like, what's up? But anyway, they've been following this man every day for three years. Now, imagine that you have the same routine every day for three years. Uh, You get up, you go have the same breakfast, you go hang out with the same people, you do the same thing. Over and over and over, every day. And then all of a sudden, you're separated from those people. What would you do? You'd be lost. For three years, they did this stuff. And now they're kind of hanging out and thinking, okay, Jesus is alive, I get that, and I'm happy about that. But why can't we go back to the way things were? Jesus, it was working so well. We were following you around. We were listening to the words that you spoke. And it was profoundly changing our lives. It was working, Jesus. Why can't we do that again? And have you ever been there? You feel like God had you in a situation that it was working, that it was going great, and everything was all peachy king, and all of a sudden, something steps in and interrupts that schedule that you're on, that pattern that you're in, and you're left just throwing your hands up saying, God, I know you're alive. I know you're here. I worship you, and I love you. But why did you mess something up in my life that was going so great? 
If it ain't broke, don't fix it, Lord. And so we're left wondering what happened. You know, Christian, if you're a Christian in this place today, our role in church and in ministry is always changing. It's always evolving. I don't like using that word because of the negative connotation, but it is. Now, the message has not changed. The message will not change because God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. But our approach to that ministry will change. You know, I read an article uh, Friday night, and it was, uh, it was titled, How Things That Worked a Decade Ago in the Church Aren't Working Anymore. And, you know, this, it says a decade, but I'm telling you, uh, these, these things have been used a lot over the years. But here's one. You know, at the church, a lot of times we expect an automatic return to church. Just because somebody comes in the doors, we expect them to come back again. And it doesn't happen that way. Not automatically. Or how about this one? Appealing to people out of guilt or obligation. People don't feel guilty or obligated to come to church anymore. It's not... you Ten, even... I say more than ten years ago, fifteen or twenty years ago, people felt obligated to come to church. It's Sunday morning, that's what you do. But now, people don't feel that way. They don't, they don't feel like they have to come to church. Gimmicks. Gimmicks are something that, especially about, I guess, 10 or 15 years ago, were really big. Uh, you would read about it all the time. Uh, the pastor who wrote this was talking about how they drove a car into the sanctuary one day in order to make get some intrigue. And there was a, I, I read a story once about a, a pastor who had a hearse parked out front of the church. And all of these things, you hear about these gimmicks and trying to one-up the last series with the new series that's even bigger and better, but eventually there's a drop-off. Because every message that I'm going to give, and the other preachers in this church can, can testify to this, it, it's not on a scale that goes up and up and up and up because eventually you get so high that you're bound to fall down. What about insincerity? Especially in worship, that's what was mentioned. You know, people, their fake detectors are at an all-time high. And if they come in here and they feel like somebody is being insincere, they're going to move on. And the last one that was, there's several, but this was the last one that stuck out to me. Assuming that people know what the next step is in salvation. That we, we just say, and, and one, that's actually one thing that I try to do in my messages, is give specific instructions on how to become a Christian. Not just that you need, you, know, you need Christianity, not just that you need Jesus, but how that you ask Him to come into your life. You know, culture changes. So our delivery of the, of the message has to change as well. Again, the message does not change. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And if we call out to, on His name, if we believe Him and confess Him as Lord and Savior, then He comes in and He saves us. That message does not change, but our approach, our delivery has to. Or we become irrelevant. It's happening right now, people. <laughs> Open your eyes. The church is becoming more and more irrelevant every day. And what we have to do is we have to stand up for the truth of God. But back to the disciples. They were probably feeling a little left out. Wouldn't you? I mean, let's, let's, put our, 
real goggles on and our, and our real lives and put ourselves in that situation. And we're with Jesus every day of our life. And now he's alive and he's on this earth, but he's not spending his time with me. What did I do wrong, Jesus? Why are you, am I not good enough for you anymore? You know, have you found somebody else? That kind of deal. <laughs> but this is why I like Peter. You know, we, we talk about Peter because he's an everyman. And let me tell you something. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm stressed out, you know what I say? I'm going fishing. And he does the same thing. I've not been in a while, but I, especially when I was in college, I was, I was the resident fisherman because I always had a tackle box and a rod and reel in my car, and we would drive out to Laurel Lake and fish. And nobody that I went with, male or female, would ever bait a hook. They didn't know how to get a fish off of a hook. Didn't know how to change flat tires. But that's, that's unrelated. Before you go to college, know how to change a flat tire. My goodness. Uh, I can't tell you how many I, I got called to change because I became the resident. And when I'm the resident, like auto guy, that's, that's some low standards right there. I mean, the, the bar is like, woo, way down here. Changing the tire and changing the oil, I can do that, but not much else. But anyway, he says, I'm going fishing. I don't care what's going on. I'm going fishing. I don't know what my next steps are. God's not giving me any direction right now, so I'm going fishing. I just don't know. And sometimes when you don't know, literally, going fishing is the best step to take. But you know what? We can apply that to our spiritual lives as well. If God has you in a hallway, if He has you in between jobs, if He has you in between decisions, if He has you in between just breakthroughs, the best thing that you can do sometimes is go fishing. And not literally, but spiritually. Go fishing for men and women and win souls to Christ. Because it's never a bad idea to share your faith. It's never a bad idea to throw out the cast and, let me, and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me tell you how good God is in my life. Because I'm telling you this, even when you feel like Jesus is nowhere to be found, when you go fishing, good things will happen. I don't know where God's taking me at this moment. I just don't know some things. But I do know this, that God has called me to go fish. Even when we're left in the dark, we can still say God is good. We can still say he's, exactly, I cut you off there, I'm sorry. And all the time, there you go. He's done so many things in my life. When you have no idea what's coming next, go fishing. So they get all their gear, and they go, and it says immediately they went fishing. So it's like, I'm going fishing, all right, let's go, and we're there. So they get in the boat, not been there in a while, it's fun, it's exhilarating. Getting all their stuff ready, all their nets. Peter's naked. You can read it. He puts on his outer cloak when he sees Jesus. No tan lines. All right? But they hadn't been in a while. And so they're out in the boat. And they're fishing. And to put it in language we understand, they cast out. They sit back in that swivel chair. And they crack open an ice cold L8. All right? Bunch of sinners. <laughs> And all night, all night they're fishing. 
and nothing. Not even a single bite. Not even a hint of a bite. You know, I, that happens to me every time I step on the car fork lake. I don't think there's any fish in there. I really don't. I just think that they go, they go hide and they just tease you because there's a big body of water, but there's no fish in car fork. Now, other people have caught them. I, I can't find them. But you know what? And you may go out and you may share your faith with somebody and you may not even get a hint of interest. You may even get some hostility thrown your way. But you know what? That doesn't mean we should stop going fishing. Just because you didn't get a bite this time doesn't mean that the next time that you're going to question whether or not you want to go fishing. And it's the same way with our lives. But here's the thing. They're getting frustrated. No bites, nothing. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, the frustration of everything that's been going on in their lives is starting to bubble up. Over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has left me. I don't feel like I can, I don't follow him anymore. I don't feel as close as I used to. And I'm, I'm just getting to the end of my rope. And all of a sudden, I look over to the shore, and there's a man standing there. And he calls out, Catch anything? <laughs> You got any, got any grub over there? Uh, no. Thanks for asking, but no. And let me tell you, you may feel like you're going in circles. You may feel like you're not making progress with any task that you put your hands to. And everything that's going on around you is falling apart. Everything you put your hands on just seems to crumble right in front of you. But I'm telling you this, if you'll just look up from the task that's driving you insane and look to the shore. Jesus Christ is standing on the shore. He is not that far away. And you can just reach out and almost touch Him because He's so close. You know, even the things that they were trying to do as a stress relief were, were frustrating on them. And have you ever been there? Even the things you try to have pleasure in, they just make you mad. But He's here. He's waiting. And He's ready to bless your socks off if you just let him. Because we see later in the story that Jesus had prepared a fire and is cooking fish and bread. He's baking bread. You know, they used to bake bread in the sand. That's how they would build a fire and then nearby they would bake the bread underneath the sand. That's how it would get done. And this is where the idea of stoking the fire came to me. Again, it's not the typical kind of fire that we like to focus on because we like to focus on the big fire, the day of Pentecost when the fire comes down. We like to talk about the fire that consumed Elijah's sacrifice on the, on the wet altar. We like to think of the big, crazy good fire that comes from God. But that's good because we need to have the fire fall in our life. But we also need those small little fires that are tended to by Jesus Himself, that burn in our life, that give us food for a daily walk. You know, a fire that's burning in our lives, that's not being tended to by Christ or the Holy Spirit, will soon burn out. You know, we, we get passions. You, you ever had a hobby that just kind of consumes you for a couple months, a couple years, whatever it is, and all of a sudden it just flames out? But the things that are put in our life by God will burn forever. You know, there's too many times, especially in a Pentecostal-type setting, where we feel like that it's our responsibility to keep the fire burning. 
that we have to do this and we have to do that. There's this to-do list that I have to have in order for God to keep the fire burning in my life. But the thing about it is, all He wants us to do is put ourselves in a position where we are obedient and where we can be in a position where God then can take the fire and consume our life. Our obedience puts us in a place where God can use us. But the fire is tended to by the Lord. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 20. Start with verse 9 says this, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. This is Jeremiah talking about God. I'm not going to talk about God anymore. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Excuse me. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For He has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Hallelujah. I love that. Jeremiah says it, says it best. When the fire is tended to by God, it is just like a fire that's shut up in our bones and that we cannot contain it. I tried holding it back. I tried to keep my mouth shut about God, but I... Could not. Anybody ready for your daily dose of offense? You ready? I'm giving you warning so you can guard your toes, okay? If you can shrink away in the face of adversity, if you're able to be a different person in here on Sunday than you are Monday through Saturday, your fire is not being tended to by God. If you can live a different life and be a double agent, be somebody in here, be Captain Holy and then you can live in the world and nobody knows that you're a Christian from Monday to Saturday, your fire is being tended to by yourself and not by God. I know that's tough to hear. But it's scriptural. It says if you're able to suppress your faith, your fire is not burning as hot as it needs to be. If Christianity is something you feel like you can turn off and on, maybe you're not letting God stoke the fire. Jeremiah says, I've tried. I've tried to stay quiet in the face of people dogging God. I've tried to stay quiet in the face of adversity. I've tried to stay quiet in the face of all the sin and the evil that's around me, and I cannot do it. It just comes flowing out of me. It feels like it's going to burst out of my bones. When the Lord begins to stoke the fire within us, we cannot hold back the words anymore. We cannot hold back His message We cannot hold back the testimony that He's given us. It just is going to flow forward. It isn't meant to be contained or kept secret. It's meant to share. So don't be scared when Bible verses and the Word of God come flowing out of you. It's the power of God that's flowing through you. I can remember Freddie Bailey saying a song in here one time. It said, when God starts to fire, we don't need no matches. Amen? When, he's, when He comes in and He consumes things around us, 
We don't have to worry about some fire starter. We don't have to worry about liquid newspaper. That's what my father-in-law calls, uh, uh, what's it? Lighter fluid. Yeah, that's what it's called. <laughs> I got, just, it just whew, went away. But you know what? That doesn't give us a license to spew out judgmental opinions and hate either. The Word of God and our opinions, they should line up, but they don't always line up. And we have these wrong opinions that we like to spew off and tag God's name on it when we can't do that either. And what we have to do is say, God, use your fire to come down and consume my thoughts, consume my opinions, consume my preconceived notions, God, and let your word flow out of me. Jeremiah goes on to say that the people around him, because of his boldness, began to watch for and anticipate him to stumble and fall. Surely we don't have anybody in our lives that are just waiting for us to stumble and fall, right? We don't have anybody who just watches our lives and when, when we mess up or make a mistake, they go, tisk tisk tisk. I thought you were a Christian. I thought Christians didn't judge. I thought Christians weren't supposed to have bad days. I thought Christians weren't supposed to say that word. I, my pastor doesn't say that word, and so you shouldn't say it either. Well, surely we don't have... Even it says in the, in the book, acquaintances. In the New Living Translation, it says old friends. Surely we don't have any quote-unquote friends who like to see us mess up, right? We don't have anybody close to us who wants to deliver a big old I told you so when you fall down flat on your face. And we're obligated then to point the finger at ourselves too. Surely we don't question the sincerity of somebody we watch fall and stumble over and over again and then just wait for them to mess up again. Ugh, move on. <laughs> But verse 11 says those who wait to see others stumble, they will be the ones to fall and to stumble. Praise God that the ones who want to have victory over us are the ones that will stumble. The persecuted ones are the ones who will have the victory. Okay, nobody must have anybody coming against them in here. I'm the only one that's really, and Don and Derek, because they amen me. But does anybody have anybody who is trying to come against you? They're sandpaper. They just rub you the wrong way constantly. God says in His Scripture that they will not prosper. Okay. There's about four more of you. we got, we got to have a meeting after church. All of us are being persecuted. The rest of you just go home because life is peachy. <laughs> but verse 13. Go to verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for He has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. He has delivered our lives. Hallelujah. He gives us life and not death. He gives us warmth and not cold. Yes. Ah. (laughs) Let me tell you. It all starts with the fire that He places in our lives. That's where it started with Jeremiah. It's a fire shut up in His bones. And I'm telling you today, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're living a cold existence. No spark, no fire, no warmth. I want to invite you to come to Him today. He died for you. You can live for Him 
The Bible says all we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We admit that we're not perfect. We believe that Jesus came to this earth and He died for us, only to raise again on the third day, and we confess with our mouth that He is Lord and Savior of our life. You may think, a life-changing decision like that, that, that seems too easy. There ought to be something a little more difficult than that. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ did the difficult part. He came to this earth and He lived a perfect life. And He died on a cross because we were on His mind. He did the hard part, so all that we have to do is call on Him. I want to say just a couple more things and I'll be done. Over the course of this series, I, I haven't decided how many directions I'm going to take on this. Probably two or three more weeks. I want to dive deeper, and we're going to look at this story. We're going to go back to it. You may say, well, you skipped a lot of that in John chapter 21. I did it on purpose, because we're going to go back to it, and we're going to look at it. And each week, we're going to look at a different aspect of that story. Words or phrases in that chapter that will help us stoke the fire that God has placed in our life. We must realize it is God who stokes the fire. Until we give Him control, that fire won't burn like